Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Let me invite you to take your Bible and join me in the book of Philippians. And the text that we're going to examine tonight after we introduce the book is in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through verse 11. Probably one of my uh, three or four favorite texts in all of Scripture. Uh, A passage that I have studied repeatedly over the years. And uh, just every time I go through it, uh, I find something uh, more wonderful that I missed the previous time through. Uh, And it is a good chapter that summarizes what Philippians is all about, a book of joy uh, that is found in humility before Christ. And that really would be a good thing, Uh, a book of joy found in humility before Jesus Christ. And so in chapter 2, verse 1, Paul writes, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you look at the first page of your notes this evening, we could say that the theme of Philippians, in addition to joy found in humility before Christ, is it is a book that expresses heartfelt thanks and attempts to promote both joy and unity in the church. If I had been alive in the first century and the Lord appeared to me in a vision, And the Lord said, you can pastor any church in the first century world that you would like to pastor. That would have been an easy call. I would have picked Philippians and the church at Philippi. I would not have wanted to be in Corinth, God forbid. Uh, That was a carnal church, a fussing church, a fighting church. Uh, Colossae had false teaching. The Thessalonians had some problems. But the church at Philippi only had a couple of ladies that were having a difficult time getting along. They were a missionary-minded church. They were a giving church. It was a good place to serve. And so Paul writes a letter to a church that he has very great affection for. And so he wants to thank them for how they have supported him 
and stood with him. And at the same time, he wants to promote both joy and unity in the fellowship. Paul is the author. Epaphroditus was the courier or the one who carried the letter. The church at Philippi, as we'll see, was founded by Paul on his second missionary journey. That is recorded in Acts chapter 16. Uh, His first converts, one was a lady by the name of Lydia. The other was a nameless Roman jailer. Uh, Interestingly, his introduction to the church at Philippi is the only one that contains all three designations of all the saints, the bishops, and the deacons. And so it's interesting that you have that special twist on his introduction. The date of writing is A.D. 60 to 63, and the place of writing was Rome, again, during his first Roman imprisonment. We noted last week that there are four prison epistles, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so Philippians is the second one that we are examining. On page 2, I have broken the book down for you in large paragraph divisions. And again, the text that I read a moment ago, in many ways, is the heart and soul of the letter. Chapter 2, verse 1 through chapter 2, verse 4. Humility plus sensitivity will equal unity in the body of Christ. And then Jesus' own example of humility resulted in his exaltation. Therefore, the ultimate example for you and me in terms of how we are to be humble before the Lord and humble in the body. Body of Christ is indeed the Lord Jesus himself. And so that text in particular, in my judgment, stands out as the heart and soul of the book. Look then with me to page three, and let's walk through our introductory issues quickly. Uh, authorship, in terms of its authenticity and genuineness, the traditional view is indeed the Apostle Paul. Indeed, the first verse of chapter one says, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. I suspect that Timothy is mentioned there because he perhaps served as the amanuensis or the secretary. I don't think Paul is arguing here for dual authorship, but rather that Timothy assisted him in the writing of the letter. I point out for you that this was the universal view of the church until the modern era. In other words, no one ever questioned until the 18th century that Paul was the author of Philippians. Internal evidence, such as its self-claim in chapter 1, verse 1, the numerous personal references strongly support this. Second paragraph there, the picture that the author presents of himself is in perfect agreement with what we know of Paul from other sources, such as uh, the book of Acts, Second Corinthians, the book of Galatians. In style and language, one commentator said, no New Testament letter can make a stronger claim to be Pauline. Then the external evidence for Paul is both early And it is widespread geographically, and this again supports the internal evidence that Paul is the author. Now again, if you come to the seminary, you take a class on New Testament survey, we will at least introduce you to the fact that back during the 1800s, there was a famous school of thought in Germany called the Tübingen School of Thought under a man by the name of F.C. Bauer. Uh, F.C. Bauer was an anti-supernaturalist. Uh, F.C. Bauer was greatly influenced by the philosophy of a man named Hegel. He saw everything in kind of a dialectic. And so being very skeptical about many things related to the scriptures, he was one of the few 
Now, underline the word few. He was one of the few who also challenged the authenticity of Philippians as having been written by Paul. But you'll notice the last sentence I make in that paragraph, this radical view, was not convincing to most. And except for an occasional and I should say very infrequent revival, it has largely disappeared so that no one accepts the uh, per, uh, the, the position of F.C. Bauer. Indeed, the vast majority of contemporary New Testament scholars... Even those who are on the more liberal end of the spectrum affirm that, indeed, Philippians gives every evidence of having been written by Paul, the apostle. Now, I will point out thirdly there that many scholars believe that Philippians 2, 6 through 11, is an early Christian hymn about Christ and that perhaps Paul appropriated it, meaning it is a pre-Pauline hymn that Paul puts into his letter. That, by the way, would not bother me in the least if that were indeed to be the case. Others believe that Paul wrote Philippians 2, 6 through 11 himself. He is actually the author of it. The fact is, we cannot know. We do know this. Philippians 2, 6 through 11 is in Philippians because Paul wanted it there under the leading of the Holy Spirit. And so the conclusion is there is no good reason for rejecting Paul as the author of the book of Philippians. Top of page four, origin and date. Well, interestingly, if you go to Philippians, it does not give an explicit statement regarding its place of origin or its date. And so we're going to have to infer from various things we might find in the book that would indicate to us when it was written and from where it was written. Well, I make at least six observations for you from an inductive study of the Bible. Number one, Paul was in prison when he wrote the letter. We learned this from chapter 1, verse 7, 13, and 17. Number two, Paul faced a trial that could end in either his death or acquittal. And that in and of itself is going to be very decisive in pushing us toward the city of Rome. Number three, Timothy and Epaphroditus were with him. Number four, and this is also, I think, very significant, the praetorium. He actually uses that phrase, the praetorium. All those who belong to Caesar's household were with him at the place of writing. And again, naturally, that sure sounds like Rome. Number five, the place of origin also had a church of some size, and there was an extensive evangelistic effort going on. Again, that would fit the city of Rome. And then number six, the letter itself indicates that at least two round trips were made between Philippi and the place of writing within the time span of Paul's imprisonment, approximately a two-year period of time based upon Acts 28 and verse 30. And so, letter C, the traditional view is this. Philippians was written in Rome during Paul's first Roman imprisonment somewhere between A.D. 60 and 63. Again, about 30 years after the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This view, in my judgment, accounts best for the internal evidence. Secondly, an early church document called the Marcionite Prologue gives evidence uh, externally of Rome as indeed the place whereby Paul or where Paul wrote the book of Philippians. Now, there are some objections to this. They're not very strong, but I have listed them for you there at the bottom of page four and also at the top of page five. I'm going to simply let you look at that on your own. They are not very strong, but at least some people have raised those uh, issues. And so I put them out there for you because of that at letter E. Some have said, well, you know, actually better would it be that we say that Paul wrote Philippians from Caesarea when he was imprisoned there between A.D. 57 and 59. 
But there's a number of problems with that. The most significant being there's no indication that Paul's life is in peril and that there's an imminent judgment that could result either in his execution or his acquittal. Uh, Others have said, well, Ephesus. Between A.D. 53 and 55, the problem is there's no record in Acts that Paul was ever imprisoned in Ephesus. Then some have said, well, maybe Corinth. But again, there's no evidence at all that Paul was ever imprisoned in Corinth, certainly for any extended period of time. And so again, concluding the traditional view, Rome. A.D. 60 to 63, as the place of origin and date, though not absolutely problem-free, has by far the strongest internal and external support. So we're going to say, Paul is its writer. Paul's in Rome, first Roman imprisonment, A.D. 60 to 63, writing then to the church at Philippi. Top of page 5 or 6, then, the destination. I think you'll find this interesting. Philippi was named after Philip of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander the Great. It was the chief city of that part of Macedonia. Indeed, Acts 16.12 says this. From there, we, speaking probably of Paul and Luke, traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. Now, before I go on, I've said this before. This is, again, typical of Paul's missionary strategy. As a missionary, as a church planter, Paul attacked the major cities of the Roman world. He did not go to the little towns, the small hamlets, the the -the out-of-the-way places. He went to the major cities knowing that if he evangelized a major city, the church from that major city, if it was a good church, a godly church, a New Testament church, would then evangelize the surrounding areas as well. We saw last week that in writing and ministering in Ephesus for an extended period of time, Paul was then able to also evangelize cities like uh, Colossae, uh, Hierapolis, Laodicea, probably uh, 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 Thyatira, and so on, Laodicea. So all of those cities in and around Ephesus would have been evangelized by the church at Ephesus that Paul had planted in that major city. Hence, he likewise goes again to the very most significant city in that part of Macedonia, the city of Philippi, and note, It had a population of this day between 200 and 500,000 people. That was an enormous city in the first century. Mostly it was a Greek city. And by the way, that may indicate why in the book of Philippians, there is not one single direct quotation from the Old Testament. And so it may indicate that Paul was writing to a very strong Greek uh, Gentile audience. Certainly there would have been some believers there. But as we note in the evangelization of the church at Philippi, when Paul went to, uh, uh, to Philippi, Paul did not go to a synagogue. Evidently there wasn't one there. And he met Lydia down by the river. He met the Philippian jailer in jail. And so Paul plants a church in a city that evidently did not have a strong Jewish presence in the first century. Thus, as I point there, he was in uh, evangelizing in that kind of a way and noting his first converts there. Third paragraph, then the city is commonly referred to as the birthplace of European Christianity. The first converts resulted from the organized mission work in Europe on Paul's second missionary journey, approximately A.D. 50, Luke ministering after that. In other words, many have pointed out That is very strategic and advantageous for you and for me. 
that Paul went westward to Philippi and not eastward back toward Asia. It is not by accident that Western culture and the Western part of Europe became evangelized and eventually became Christian. And you and I are here tonight as a result of that. In fact, some have said very interestingly that uh, Paul saw in a vision a man from Macedonia praying, come over, come over. And some have pointed out tongue in cheek. Yes, and the man from Macedonia was a woman named Lydia. Because his first convert in Macedonia was a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple, a very wealthy, evidently, businesswoman. And so as a result of that, the gospel moves westward, eventually to Rome, on to Spain, and so on. It did not move as rapidly and successfully going back toward the east. Also, it's interesting that a reputable school of medicine was there. Some have even hypothesized, though we cannot be dogmatic, that uh, Philippi could have been Luke's hometown. Letter B, then, Philippi was an important and very strategic city for the advance of Christianity into Europe. Number four, then, why did Paul write this letter while in prison to the church at Philippi? Well, there are several observations I make here, two big ones. First, the occasion of the epistle is plainly clear from the letter itself. It revolves around the return of Epaphroditus to Philippi following his serious illness in Rome. And most likely he was the bearer of the letter. So Epaphroditus had been sick and nearly died. Paul is sending him back. And while Paul sends him back, Paul says, hey, I can send a letter with you as well, giving some correspondence with the Philippians. Secondly, the purpose of the epistle is basically pastoral with the following features showing us why Paul wrote Philippians. And I make six observations here. Number one, to give them an update on his present situation and the prospects for his future. Paul is optimistic that he is going to be released, but he is not certain. And so he says, look, it seems like things are coming to a head. It seems like a decision is going to be reached fairly soon. So here's where things are. Pray for me that God may grant me a release. I may come see you and do further missionary uh, journeying. Secondly, he exhorts them to stand firm for the gospel with joy despite suffering and adverse circumstances. And we will see in a moment that there were some false teachers attacking them. Thirdly, he exhorts them to unity and harmony within the church, giving Christ as the ultimate example of unity, harmony, joy, and humility. Number four, he informs them about the ministry of Epaphroditus, whom they sent to minister to his needs. Number five, he warns them about deceptive and false teachers. And number six, he expresses thanks for their generous gifts. This was a missionary-minded church. And Paul says again and again, you sent and ministered to my needs, and I have great joy and great gratitude for who you are and what you've done. And in particular, he addresses that in chapter 4, verse 10 through verse 20. And then fifthly, the literary structure. Some basic characteristics and the unity of the book. Letter A. Philippians is a very personal apostolic letter that follows the traditional Hellenistic or Greek epistolary, uh, epistolary form or letter form. There's a greeting, there's a body, there's a conclusion. Not a whole lot different than the way we write our letters with one exception. We sign off at the end, they signed off at the beginning. And actually, their way makes a whole lot more sense than our way. But that's the way they did it, that's the way we do it. Secondly, there's some interesting internal characteristics under letter B. First, the book is intensely personal, 
warm. It's, it's like a spontaneous letter to dear friends. In fact, the first person singular pronoun or verb form occurs almost 120 times in just four chapters. And this, in some ways, will account for some uh, abrupt changes in topic and tone as Paul just sort of spontaneously takes off in this direction and then goes in another direction. Secondly, though the letter is not a, a highly developed theological document, Paul's focus is very strong in terms of Christology. For him, Christ is everything. And as I said earlier, there's not a greater uh, Christological passage in all of the Bible. Then Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through verse 11, which we will look at in just a moment. Then letter C. The traditional view is that Philippians is a literary unity. Well, that's disputed by some. Some say no. Some say, well, it is a single letter by Paul. Others say, no, it's a compilation by an anonymous editor of two or more brief Pauline letters. And on and on they go. And again, I give you some of the arguments there at the bottom of page 7 and through the top of page 8. I'm not going to chase that very far. Simply to say, we have never, ever, 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 ever found an ancient Greek document of Philippians that was anything other than a unity. No early church father. No patristic father, no medieval father, no one ever questioned that it was a unity until the modern skeptical enlightenment rationalistic era, both E-R-A and E-R-R-O-R. And uh, there's really no reason to go down that road or down that path. And so as I say on page eight, number three, there's no compelling reason to doubt the integrity or the unity of Philippians. And then number six, some special problems. Uh, Who are these enemies that are mentioned in chapter 1, verse 28, chapter 3, verse 2, and chapter 3, verse 18? In other words, here's the basic questions. Are these opponents from within the church or from outside the church? Are they the same group or are there perhaps two different groups? Now, the opponents, without any debate, had these features. A, they emphasized circumcision and conformity to the Mosaic law. In other words, you've got to do works to be saved. Secondly, they emphasized spiritual perfectionism, this side of heaven. And thirdly, they focused on earthly material pursuits. And Paul will address all three of these in the letter. Well, what have scholars said? Well, one view is to say the opponents in chapter 1, verse 28 are unbelievers who actually pose a physical threat to the church. They are hostile to the gospel. And it would even take physical uh, action against the uh, believers within the church. Some have said, no, well, the opponents in chapter 3, verse 2 through 16 uh, are Judaizers. Uh, they profess Christ, but they have a work salvation. It is not we're saved by faith alone, but we're saved by faith plus good works. And in particular, obeying the laws of Moses and in particular, circumcision. In fact, I won't chase this too far. But Paul says basically something like this to the Judaizers. If you think cutting a little flesh off will do you some good, you just ought to cut all of it. And he's really rather blunt and just basically says, you think a little trimming will do some good? Why don't you just go ahead and basically take a machete and do the whole thing? And I mean, that would have been just the Judaizers would have gone ballistic. But Paul's point is, look, that's such a stupid argument. Why would you think that trimming a little flesh from anything would get you rightly related to God? If you think that's good, then just take out a machete and just start taking out everything. And Paul says there's no logic or common sense whatsoever to that 
way of thinking. I'll never forget, by the way, a few years ago, we had a uh, teacher uh, from uh, Perkins Theological Seminary, which is on the campus of SMU, which is not a citadel of evangelical orthodoxy by any stretch of that. If they have even one professor that believes in the virgin birth, that would be better than they were 25 years ago. And uh, we had a man come, and he was lecturing on the the order of the synoptic gospels, whether Matthew comes first, Mark comes first, or Luke, Luke comes first. And he was fine with that. He's over there. That's his thing. But I remember one day someone asking him, we did a Q&A, which is always fun to do with maybe an agnostic or an atheist, or in this case, a very liberal scholar. And someone asked him, one of my students, do you believe in the inerrancy, the complete truthfulness of the Bible? It's full inspiration. And this very nice man, who, by the way, married a Baptist whose parents had been missionaries, said, well, you know, I haven't thought about my view of inspiration probably 30 years. I mean, that's just not a question that my seminary ever even talks about anymore. I mean, basically, anyone that's having that conversation are Neanderthal throwbacks. The, the enlightened seminary world has done away with issues like the inspiration of the Bible a long time ago. And, of course, the answer is it's not. But then he said, you know, I, I kind of understand where some of you are coming from. My wife is a, a, a Baptist uh, MK. And then he said, but let me just give you an example. Over there in Philippians, where Paul just really kind of talks to the Judaizers in a way that I just find very um, uncouth, just very distasteful. In fact, he says they should go out. And mutilate themselves, but that's how you would say it politely. And then he went and said, really saying, just go ahead and castrate yourselves. He said, I just have a hard time believing that the Holy Spirit would inspire someone to say, go mutilate yourselves. Well, I don't, because I think the Holy Spirit is that concerned about truth. And he thinks if you think a little uh, cutting will do some good, then mutilation would be even all the better. Right? Go ahead and cut off both arms, both legs, chop your head off too. If you think a little cutting away will get you to heaven, then just cut everything away. And I don't think the Holy Spirit had any trouble inspiring Paul to speak in that kind of a way. And so some have said it's these Judaizers. The bottom line is most likely you have unbelieving Self-righteous Jews who have invaded the church, some perhaps claiming faith in Christ plus good works, some perhaps just simply claiming that Christ is a wrong way all the way around. And so that may be why Paul is quite severe, quite blunt in the way he addresses the issue concerning the false teachers. Uh, finally, vocabulary and style. We'll jump to there. The epistle contains less censure. And more praise than any other letter that Paul wrote. As I said earlier, no Old Testament quotations. Sixty-five words, interestingly, not found in other Pauline writings. The book is more practical than doctrinal. But don't you skip Philippians 2, 6-11. Secondly, there's an overriding positive attitude about the letter. Words such as joy and encouragement stand out and they occur again and again and again. I mean, the atmosphere is uplifting, encouraging, positive. Paul feels good about what is going on at Philippi. Letter C, and I love this part. There seems to be an emphasis on positive examples. For example, Paul cites Jesus, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and even himself as worthy examples for the Philippians 
to follow. And then letter D, it does seem as if a change takes place or there's a turning point in chapter 3 where Paul begins to be quite severe in warning them to avoid the evil men, the legalists, who he says are nothing less than mutilators of the flesh. And then page 10. I think you'll enjoy this before we get to our text this evening. Uh, several years ago in my D-Men class at uh, Southern Seminary, we studied and we preached through the book of Philippians. And one of my students, very creative young man, came up with an outline that I've adjusted a little bit. That's why his name's not on it. It's got enough of a twist that now it's a Danny Aiken original and not his original. But uh, anyway, he did come up with the title, Paul's Jailhouse Journal of Joy. And, of course, for you Elvis friends, you'd probably begin to look up, think about jailhouse. In fact, there was a jailhouse rock that took place in Acts chapter 16. But Paul's jailhouse journey of joy. And what does Paul say? And it's a really nice outline. Chapter 1, through Jesus, be joyful. Chapter 2, through Jesus, be humble. Chapter 3, through Jesus, be faithful. And chapter 4, through Jesus, be thankful. And if you are thankful... Faithful, humble, and joyful, you will indeed experience the joy that is found in Jesus. Well, of all the texts that we could look at that emphasizes that, take your outline on page 11, and let's walk quickly through Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, a text that could be titled in a number of ways, but I've given it the title, The God Who Came Down. Three things that I see in this particular text. I actually think that Philippians 2, 5 through 11, actually Philippians 2, 6 through 11, is a grand illustration of the truth that Paul teaches in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. In other words, 1 through 5 is Paul's instruction. 6 through 11 is Paul's example of his instruction that we be united, humble, and sensitive. Now, let me walk you through it quickly. Paul says in the first four verses, cultivate the character of Christ. He begins by laying a foundation of divine blessings. In verse 1, he notes that there are four of them for every child of God. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, and there is, if there is comfort of love, and there is, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, and there is, and if there is any affection and mercy, and there is. Paul assumes the reality of each of those four if statements. And Paul in prison, Paul not certain about his future, can say, I am encouraged in Christ. I am comforted by his love. I enjoy the fellowship of the Spirit. I have affection and mercy. What more could anyone ask for in Jesus? And so Paul says, here are the blessings that I have. Here are the blessings You have. Now, in light of these blessings, here's how you need to behave. And Paul says, unity, humility, and sensitivity characterize, verse 5, having the mind of Christ. You say, show them to me, all right? Unity. Verse 2, fulfill my joy by being what? Like-minded. Having the same love. Being of one accord, of one mind. And so Paul says, where the mind of Christ is present, we will be like-minded, have the same love, be one accord, being of one mind. So let your life be characterized by unity. Secondly, let it be characterized by humility. Verse 3, let nothing be done through selfish ambition 
Or, and the old King James says it better, vain conceit, but in humility of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. I think that's one of the greatest verses in all the Bible for a church. I think it's one of the greatest verses in all the Bible for marriage. When I do premarital counseling, I always tell the couple first meeting after I've shared the gospel with them and talked about their relationship with Christ, that if indeed I come to agree to do their wedding, and I don't agree to do every wedding that I'm asked to do, I tell them I require that I read three different texts of Scripture during the actual ceremony. One is 1 Corinthians 13, the chapter on love. One is Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, which talks about the godly wife and the godly husband. And the third one is Philippians 2, 1 through 5. And I say the reason I want to do that is because here in verse 3, if you will nail this down, if this will become a foundational plank in your marriage, I guarantee you, you will have a wonderful, great, fulfilling, happy marriage. Let nothing, sir or ma'am, be done through selfish ambition. I must have what I want. Or vain conceit. I deserve what I want. No. In humbleness of mind, you esteem your mate better than yourself. I've never met a couple in my life that did that and got a divorce. I've never met a couple in my life that did that and did not have a wonderful smile on their face. Paul says your life should be characterized by humility. Then he says sensitivity, verse 4. Let each of you look out, scope out. Not only his own interest, but also the interest of others. In other words, Paul would say, don't start with yourself. Start with others. In marriage, don't start with yourself. Start with your mate. As a parent, don't start with yourself. Start with your children. As a child, don't be self-centered. Don't start with yourself. I know it's hard, but once in a while as a teenager, why don't you start with mom and dad? Won't you ask, what does life look like from their perspective? And again, this is not a parenting seminar, but when I was raising our four sons before they left the home, many times, we have, well, not many times, they were good guys. We were, we were very lucky. But times when we would have to deal with them in a disciplinary kind of a way, many times I did what I know they hated. And I would say, well, guys, i tell you what. Tell me what you would do to you if you were the daddy. You're the daddy. And you know that your son has just done this. Now, you tell me what you think would be a fair and appropriate punishment. You know what? It really affected the way they looked at the situation. I mean, it took the sting out of, well, you're being unfair or you shouldn't. In fact, most of the time I had to mitigate and ease back on the punishment that they would inflict upon themselves, especially when they were little. I mean, I'd say, all right, what do you think I should do for the fact that you hit your brother? I don't know. Maybe never let me watch TV for the rest of my life. Well, that might be a little bit extreme. You know, I, I could think of maybe a few hours, but, you know, even I, uh, a confirmed uh, TV-holic, think that's, that's, over the, that's over the edge. I mean, that you just can't go quite that far. And so, again, shifting the perspective just has a way of putting things in a completely different light. And so he says, cultivate the character of Christ. Now, you should be saying, but wait a minute, I have a question, Danny. How do you know that this is the character of Christ? And I would say, I'm glad you asked. Because the hinge verse, the key verse of verses 1 through 11 is verse 5. Let this mind, what mind, Paul? The mind I just described in verses 2 
3 and 4, let this kind of mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, your hand should go up again and say, wait, 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 I have another question. How do we know that Christ has that kind of mind? Paul again would say, I'm glad you asked. And I do agree. Whether Paul wrote it or Paul borrowed it from someone else. I do believe Philippians 2, 6 through 11 was a first century Christian hymn. Even in English, it has a hymnic kind of role and rhyme to it. It, it divides quite naturally into two stanzas. Stanza number one, verses six through eight, the humiliation of Christ. Stanza number two, verses nine through eleven, the exaltation of Christ. So there's stanza one and stanza two. And I also agree this name will not mean anything to most of you, but I also agree that the German theologian Joachim Jeremias was right on target when he said that he believed Philippians 2, 6-11 was Paul's inspired commentary on Isaiah 53. And I do think the suffering servant of the Lord of Isaiah 53 was in the background of Paul's mind as he penned these words. So what did Paul say? First of all, consider the cross of Christ. See his renunciation. Verse 6, who being in the form of God. That word being is a present tense verb. It means continually existing. The word form is the Greek word morphe, which means the very essence or substance, or reality of a thing. In other words, Paul is saying Christ always and forever existed in the form of God, the essence of God. I think the NIV says the nature of God. In other words, and hear me and hear me well, whatever it is that makes God God, the Lord Jesus has always been all of that. The ancient church uh, uh, heretic Arius was wrong when he said, There once was a time when the Son was not. God was not always a father. Paul would say, dead wrong. God has always eternally had a son. And that son has always and eternally existed in the very essence the very nature, the very substance and reality of God. He has always been God, but he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now, that can be understood in one of two ways. Some believe it means that he did not consider equality with God as something he had to steal. After all, if you're God, you don't have to steal deity, do you? Others have said, no, because he was God. He did not think that his deity was something that could be taken from him. And both ideas perhaps are true, though, because of the context, I lean toward the latter. I lean toward the view that because he was God, he knew that his deity could not be taken from him. And therefore, he gladly and willingly did what we read in verse 7 and verse 8. Now see the incarnation, but. Because his deity could not be taken away from him, he made himself of no reputation. Literally in the Greek text, he emptied himself. And he emptied himself how? Well, look at what follows. First of all, he took the very essence of a slave. Secondly, he came in the likeness of men. 
Thirdly, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death. Number four, it was even the death of the cross. Last spring, I preached on this text at the seminary. I remember very clearly talking about the fact that some theologians refer to this as the great condescension. And I think it's a great way of describing it because they point out he was in heaven and he came to earth, but he didn't stop there. He came to earth and he became a man. He didn't stop there. He became a man who became a servant. He didn't stop there. He became a servant who died. He didn't stop there. He became a servant who died and died the most horrible death known to anyone in the first century. He died the death of crucifixion. Now, that is the exegetical understanding of his emptying. There's also a theological understanding that I'll just simply say this and move on. The incarnation was not a subtraction of deity. The incarnation was an addition of humanity. Jesus Christ in the incarnation did not surrender his deity, but he did for a brief time lay aside his glory. And if you are a note taker and you ought to be, you should write beside Philippians 2, 6 through 8, this passage, John chapter 17 and verse 5. John chapter 17 and verse 5, I think, explains better than any other passage in all the Bible what took place in the incarnation. This is the high priestly prayer of our Lord on the night in which he would be betrayed. He is there praying to his father and he says, and now, O father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you when? Before the world was. In other words, he did not surrender his deity. But for a brief time, he laid aside his glory. I like to say it again. He became God incognito for about 33 years. And so the Bible says, when you're thinking about humility, consider the cross of Christ. And then finally... Celebrate the crowning of Christ, verses 9, 10, 11, his exalted position, adoration, and confession. Verse 9, therefore, in light of what he did in verse 6, 7, and 8, God has highly exalted. It could be translated super exalted. Paul basically coined the new world word there. He has been super exalted. And he has given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Now, I need to stop there. For those of you that are careful Bible students, you will know that there is some debate as to what is the name that he was given there in verse 9 and following. You say, well, it's very clear. It says he gave him a name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus. Well, some people have said, yeah, well, that's not all that special of a name. There are, there are lots of people in the ancient world named Jesus or Joshua, and that is true. And so they will say, no, actually, the name that he was given is there in verse 11. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so they will argue that the name that he is given is the name Lord. Now, there's no debate. He is given the name Lord and many other wonderful names as well. And maybe it's my sentimentalism. Maybe it's just a little uh, twinge and tug in my heart. But I have just never, and I will tell you, you go read 15 commentaries, which I've done. 
And you read a half a dozen journal articles, which I've done, and you'll find out almost without exception the, the big boys in the scholarly world will say, well, the name is the name Lord. I can't get away from the fact that I still think the name is Jesus. Because right there it says, he gave him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus. And I think that there's something now wonderful and majestic and awesome, not so much about the name, but about the person who bears the name. And therefore, because of the name of Jesus and all that that entails, including his perfect uh, deity, his perfect humanity, his perfect atoning life, his perfect sacrifice on the cross, all that he did, Paul says every knee should bow. Where, Paul? Well, I said every knee, but in case you're a little slow, let me clarify. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, there's really nowhere else than those three places. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is true that every tongue will confess someday. Some will confess gladly and joyfully and willingly. They'll spend eternity in a wonderful place called heaven. Others, unfortunately, will confess. Oh, he is the Lord. But it will be done so at the wrong time, in the wrong way, and it will be too late. So even though I know this is a Wednesday night crowd, the, the more diligent of the, of the church, each one of us should make sure that right now, today, Gladly, joyfully, willingly, without any hesitation or reservation whatsoever, you can say to anyone who would ask, I gladly confess, Jesus Christ is the Lord, and I do so to the glory of God the Father. Nothing like that confession, nothing like that Savior. Let's be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for a book of joy. No wonder Paul had such joy. As he thought about how wonderful and how awesome and great is the Lord Jesus. And as he reflected upon his leaving heaven where he was the enthroned son of God, very God of very God, came into this world and died the death of a criminal on a cross. Paul was overwhelmed at such grace and mercy and kindness and love. And out of that, Paul could be joyful. Paul could be humble. And Paul could be the great apostle that he was. Lord, may we likewise respond to the cross as did Paul, with gratitude, with thanksgiving, with humility, and also joy, that we might indeed have a unity that says to the world, you will know that we are Christians by the way we love one another. May that be true of us each and every day, as long as you give us breath. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. 
We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.